right. I am very excited to be back with uh, Professor Navyug Gill of William Patterson University in New Jersey. Uh, Navyug was my special correspondent for the uh, Farm Punjab or the India Farmers Movement uh, over the past year. So I would reference the earlier episode that we did about this because um, we're probably going to refer to that. And it's also just great to see you again, Navyug, and especially under these circumstances after so much sacrifice and, um, you know, so long uh, to have to be able to say, like, we're talking now in the context of these laws that were being protested are now uh, going to be repealed. It's been publicly announced. So um, you said on uh, November 18th, when I, when I saw the news, I couldn't believe it. The first thing I did was look and see what you, <laughs> I went on your Twitter to find out what you were saying about it. And you said, stay vigilant amid the euphoria and anger, the struggle continues. So why don't we start with that? And I don't know, what, just tell me like how you, how you felt and like what it, what it was, you know, did you see it coming? Was it a surprise? Yeah, well, so wonderful to be back on the program, the Anti-Empire Project with you, Justin, um, and salute to all your, your listeners and viewers. Um, it's been an incredible week, and uh, it's really hard to kind of put into words um, the, the sort of combination of feelings and, and hopes um, and concerns that you know, I went through, and I'm sure lots of other people went through. Um, and yet, all we have is words, so we must, we must try to make sense of it, right? Um, so uh, I, I got the, the news on Thursday night, um, and with anything involving the Indian government, one has you know, huge amounts of disbelief and um, you know, suspicion um, because there is so much misinformation and so many sort of feints and fakes out there. So, so to me, it was just, you know, okay, something has occurred. It seems like there's been a, an announcement um, but we have to investigate its providence and we have to kind of see. Very quickly, I started getting kind of flooded with messages and it was more and more and different people in different sites. And so that's when um, I started to kind of take it seriously and looked through uh, some of the news sites that were carrying uh, Modi's uh, broadcast. And uh, because of what we've all gone through this last year with this protest, uh, it, it was, you know, those were my first thoughts that we have to stay vigilant. Um, you know, any number of things could be happening. So let's sort of hold the euphoria and hold that anger together um, and keep our eye on the, on the kind of larger prize. Um, and then by Friday morning, uh, when it looked like this was sort of actually a legit, um, you know, occurrence, uh, then, then there was a kind of rush of emotion. And, and, then, and then a kind of parallel scramble to do more sense-making. What is this? What are the implications? How did this happen? Uh, and I think I've been sort of in that space for the last uh, you know, five or six days, making sense of this moment, feeling the euphoria, uh, and trying to kind of put it in a larger context. So we have to go back so we we kind of talked you 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 kind of talked last episode last time we talked about this about how um it was a long term movement and educational process of uh these organizations that sensitized the farmers to this but it was beyond um 
beyond education, it was also like this enormous logistical project to bring people and surround Delhi and make sure they were fed. And, um, and then, um, so let's talk about, I, I kind of want to try to make sense of the different phases of attack and the kind of resilience, um, steadfastness of the farmers in the face of it. Cause it, when it started, it was sort of like just, you know, well, whatever, they're upset, they'll get over it. Right. And then, yeah. then it came to like, they're separatists and, uh, yeah. They have to be met with violence. And then there were several, probably hundreds, but several high profile like incidents where they tried to say like, look, this is a violent protest and it just has to end. Right. And then uh, the winter, <laughs> you know, and then it just maybe they'll die and get cold. Yeah. And then uh, the weather changes again and we're back to the whole thing. And and I don't know, did I miss a phase? But yeah, I mean, so it, it's. What we're saying now, today is the 28th, um, people kind of say this is a one-year anniversary of the struggle. Not quite true. Mm -hmm. uh, as we talked last year, th this mobilization began over the summer. Yeah. So the bills are announced sort of May, June. There's a kind of awareness that these bills are going to kind of be put forward. The farmer and laborer unions in Punjab start to mobilize over the summer, summer of 2020. And they start holding, holding rallies. They start small protest march. They start this kind of public awareness campaign, distributing literature, having speeches, and actually sort of mobilizing the society to uh, become aware of, the, of what these laws will do, uh, which will deregulate and privatize agricultural procurement um, and you know, throw millions of people into uncertainty and volatility and destabilize the entire sort of regional agrarian economy. Uh, jeopardizing the food supply of, of 1.3 billion people. So that happens over the summer. And then in September, there's large scale demonstrations in Punjab, um, which is the kind of epicenter of the protest. And they are shutting down railway tracks. They are uh, closing major intersections in large cities. Um, they are shutting down um, you know, grain silos and you know, thermal plants owned by these large corporations, cell phone towers, malls, party offices. Um, the protest spreads to Haryana, where the labor unions, the farmer and worker unions there mobilize. So this is happening, you know, throughout kind of September and October. And what you have is in Punjab, you have a sort of Congress government. In Haryana, you have a BJP government. But one aspect of these laws is that this was imposed by the central government, even though agriculture is supposed to be a state subject. So they're kind of violating whatever tatters of federalism remain in India by imposing something from the center. So the conversation in Punjab turns to this can't be a Punjab centric protest because the actual you know, uh, uh, instigators of, of these changes are Delhi with the central government. So we have to actually target the central government. These protests in Punjab have kind of run their course. So that is when the call is given that we have to have a march on Delhi, Delhi Chalo. And that is announced uh, somewhere, I think in October, uh, late October, and the call is November 26th, we're going to march on Delhi. And so then more and more mobilization, more and more education, uh, more and more sort of building of ties, different people sort of come to the fore. Um, there's a prominent role of like artists and singers and others that are sort of putting out songs and rallying people. But the labor unions are doing the work of educating people, holding rallies, small, you know, village-wise 
district-wise, um, um, getting people together. Um, and, and that's, I think I said last time, you can, you know, the average person at a protest can give you a articulate, succinct critique of these three laws, way more than any sort of newscaster sitting in a studio in Bombay or Delhi. So on November 26th, we then witnessed those historic scenes of um, at three or four points along the Punjab-Haryana border, farmers, laborers, and their supporters pushing past police barricades, pushing past tear gas canisters and water cannons and, um, and, and, and you know, throwing pillars into the, into, the, into the river and marching on the capital. Uh, and, and through their sheer sort of collective force, they overcame all of these obstacles um, and marched to the capital. And again, another kind of brilliant, I think, world historic moment where the Delhi government and the central government had granted kind of protest sites for people to be at, Jantar Mantar uh, and, and other places where there's a kind of routine places where people just protest and they're allowed to protest. And they made this historical decision not to go into the city and sort of sit there and perform their opposition. They halted on the outskirts at two points and blocked the roads and set up their encampments over those two or three days. It's so symbolic, right? Of like government and the people and also of like city and country. Like it, yeah, right. it's like, this is a rural movement. We're farmers. We're not going into your city. Right. And we're, we're not going to, we're not going to on you your terms. Yeah, exactly. To like go and, and petition and like beg you to, to fix this. Right. Right. And I think that's part of um, one of the sort of things that people in the West have had to learn that we are so regimented here and we're so orderly and we sort of follow rules, right. Choreographed opposition. And so at the end of a kind of protest, protest becomes about expression. Yep. And sort of once you express yourself, you feel satisfied and you go home and the state pats itself on the back for allowing you to right. express yourself. Right. And it's inconsequential. So anyway, they... they and they India call. loves that. India loves to right. say, like, we're the, we're the democracy that lets people right. say things. Right. As we continue to do whatever okay. we intended. So, so that is where the sort of surrounding of Delhi uh, starts, uh, sort of end of November. And... Um, in terms of misinformation, I mean, it's a kind of long, you know, uh, 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 list of accusations. Um, the accusation that these people are too stupid to know that these laws are in their favor, which yeah, is yeah. which is something that Modi actually reiterated that the failure was to explain the benefits of these laws yes. and they just didn't get it. Yes. So this is the most sort of colonialist trope you can imagine, right? These people don't know what's in their best interests, and we have a duty to explain it. We might have faltered in our duty, but they still don't know and we know and we have the knowledge and if we could only convey it better you know uh, we could have clinched it um then this is a movement of rich farmers right. it's only the well-to-do elite farmers that are protesting these things right. and uh they're sort of monopolizing that space. all we want to do is drive them into the worst kind of poverty what's wrong with that? right 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 <laughs> and, and and like factually untrue like the, the people that are like at Tikari and, and even Singhu are like you know, small marginal farmers, so many are landless. I mean, it's, a, you know, the, the, the debate over privatization and sort of corporatizing agriculture is a non-debate. Yeah. People know who it will benefit and who it will not. Yeah. Yet the kind of spin doctors are very actively sort of trying yeah. to kind of show that there is some benefit here and there, which is just untrue. 
Um, yeah, I mean that the thing is like the the way that Modi's government had the the broadcast media and for the most part online just completely on lockdown yeah. was a real like that was you know I I was that was the thing like I was like can this be def- can this machine be defeated like I I, I, I think that was your the title the, the Modi juggernaut or something yeah yeah yeah. yeah so you know rich farmers these people are stupid um this is a kind of global conspiracy funded by fill in the blank Pakistan China Rihanna <laughs> yeah like sort of outside agents that 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 have these kind of nefarious designs for India um that it's a movement sort of dominated by upper caste against lower caste and we're actually trying to like help lower caste and so you know perpetuating this kind of caste analysis but but actually doing it in a kind of disingenuous way these are not people interested in the emancipation of anyone um so those were the accusations that were sort of hurled at the protest i think they occurred on kind of two levels i think that there was a kind of bjp it machine you know um it cells and trolls and bots and sort of tweeting and and and, you know posting things and kind of pushing that certain narrative anonymous and, and this and that and i think that floundered I think that they kind of threw everything they could at this protest to delegitimize it, and it didn't work um, because the protest inaugurated um, a kind of popular online presence of people to kind of counter these things on their own. Like yeah. autonomous groups of people, individually, collectively, whatever, would yeah. sort of set up new sort of organizations almost and counter stuff and post stuff and people would go on live and kind of show the scenes at the protest and give their analysis and and that was a kind of I mean that's why you know there's a, a newspaper that they produce trolley times there's the kind of tractor to twitter movement or twitter tra- tractor to twitter movement to show that these are not you know simpleton rural bumpkins these are people that know mm. how to be you know savvy with technology and they they challenged all of those things but the other part I think of the BJP machine was not just not anonymous sort of bots, but a whole kind of class of people that are ostensibly respectable, mm-hmm. that are have public sort of personas. You kind of know them. Um, they speak sort of you know proper English and 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 you know wear shirts and pants, and they sit in newsrooms and they sort of parrot the BJP line, even if they're against this or that element of, of the sort of BJP's Hindutva politics. By and large, these are people in favor of privatization and corporatization. And they were putting forward the case that these are actually good for farmers. They just don't get it. And rehashing some of those things. So they tried that as well. And that kind of respectable neoliberal opinion was just as active as the anonymous bots. Absolutely. And they had to be kind of countered too. And I think that um, they were countered again in all sorts of different ways. And they sort of faltered. And right now they're kind of at a loss too. They don't know how to kind of wander what they've been saying for the last year because it's pitiful. Love to see it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See. So okay, what, but let's talk about this flag business. The 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 days that they went into the city, the the yes. accusation of separatism. Always. Yeah. So the, I mean, January twenty sixth was a very. Uh, it's a complicated uh, event. That kind of situation was was really. Um, a bit confusing and it's confusing um, and difficult to talk about because we're actually, we were living through a struggle. 
we were engaged, we're not analyzing something after the fact five years later, we're actually in the midst of it and it's happening in real time. And everybody is sort of connected to technology so they can kind of witness some things and not all things. And there's a kind of need to kind of say and give your take. And these farmer unions are also, there's 32 of them uh, in the Sindhya Morcha. There's other groups outside of that body. Um, and then there's other groups that were at the protest site, not affiliated with the unions. Um, and they've also undertaken something that's unprecedented. So we were actually in a new world and people were having to make sense of it and make decisions that are actually consequential. Um, so, you know, after the youth, you know, the move of sort of November and into December, the sort of bitter cold, the, you know, getting attacked by, by sort of right-wing gangs and police putting up razor wire and blocking access to water and electricity and internet slowdown, then all this is sort of happening. The pressure is ratcheting up but there's also a need to kind of escalate because the government can just kind of wait out this protest. And so there's a call in sort of January to march on the Capitol, uh, march on the Red Fort and, and where uh, the Republic Day celebrations take place every year. And, and that call is given and it's not a unanimous call. Some people are in favor, some people are not and there's kind of confusion around it like it would be with any live struggle. And, so there are sort of conflicting um, calls in terms of where to go and what to do. Um, and in that moment, you know, the, the, the leaders of the union sort of have a kind of route that they've designated. They're in negotiations with the Delhi police to kind of take, you know, a different route. And there's kind of confusion as to which route they'll take, how close to the city center it will go. Um, other people are steadfast in saying, look, we've busted and broken through barricades before, we ought to go all the way to the Red Fort. Um, and so in that kind of tumult uh, of that night, um, you know, 25th, 26th night in the morning, you know, some people take the pre-designated route. Some people push forward and take a second kind of route. Um, remember by this time, the protest is in three encampments around the outskirts of the city. So it's kind of coordinated from three different places. And then other people kind of push forward and go all the way to the Red Fort. Now, we should be clear that first, uh, the people of Delhi overwhelmingly supported the protest. The, the sort of middle-class, lower middle-class sections were in favor of the protest. They could see what they were struggling for. Um, they could see the kind of way they had conducted themselves. So they were kind of met with praise and you know flowers and sweets and you know celebrated second there was no property destruction there was no wanton violence there was no arson looting none of this uh you know for yeah, hundreds the, of thousands that's like that's for the government backed uh, mobs to right, do right right that's their their department right but it's 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 remarkable when you have hundreds of thousands of people organized and moving and there's none of the kind of conventional sort of you know wanton violence that happens um and by that time, hundreds of people had died in the protest uh, through sickness, through cold, through you know, police attacks, this and that, for whatever reason. So people are rightfully angry and they want to kind of you know, make a statement and they want to kind of push. And you have a difference of sort of perspectives. So some people pushed to the Red Fort and they're, uh, you know, again, they're not like vandalizing or burning anything to the ground. Um, they, you know, they might have a different kind of political orientation than some of the other groups, 
but that's what you get in a diverse society. There's an empty flagpole, they hoist a flag on it, the Kesari Nishan, Saab. It's not, I mean, so, so they hoist it, there's a kind of, you know, sort of some, somewhat of a scuffle around that for a while, and then people eventually sort of go back. Uh, the police engage in like brutal violence, like swinging at people and, and attacking people and, and doing all sorts of things. Um, but eventually sort of people come back. Now, that incident becomes the flashpoint for all sorts of liberal anxiety. And there's this obsession with talking about January 26th as if some great violation has occurred. What's amazing, though, is that that didn't work, too. <laughs> you know, the, for me, like that just the fact that that also, I don't know, fizzled out or was debunked or both. That was one of the most amazing things to me, because it's like this is going to be their thing. They're going to make this into a thing. They, they caught a hold of it and they tried their best. Yeah. And uh, it, 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 you know, it succeeded, I think, in, in the sense that there was a large a number of these sort of chattering classes, as they used to say, or like these sort of commentators expressing their anguish. And I remember saying like, these are the same people that, you know, when the people that are cleaning their gutters get killed, they have no anguish. When the kind of dismal state of affairs in terms of healthcare, in terms of caste atrocities, in terms of gender apartheid, there's not a whimper. But now a kind of flag pole has raised, you know, a different flag has been raised there. And now there's this kind of meltdown so it's hypocritical in the extreme and, and shallow. And yet the tenacity of the protests um, and the fact that the kind of people were still sort of uh, 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 adamant about their demands meant that they weren't able to derail things. And they yeah. tried very, you know, yeah. you know, ardently in the next, in the several days afterwards to kind of send people and clamp down and the police and, you know, the important involvement of, people in Western UP, Uttar Pradesh, and Rakesh Takeyat is somebody that was kind of important in that moment, uh, rallying big, people. Some big solidarity demonstrations in Kerala. In Kerala, and, and sending huge. delegations and yeah. sending people in Maharashtra and Damanad. And I think that kind of turned the tide in the sense that the government had its moment and pushed you know, all of their forces to kind of delegitimize the protest, and it failed yet again. Yeah. Um, and then and then we have the summer, which is the Delta summer of the Delta variant. Right. And the and the immense yeah, in the, COVID in the midst of COVID cemeteries yeah. and the, the you know, cremation centers. And the, I mean, all of those images kind of took over. And the, and the and the and the pleas for oxygen by the people yeah. of Delhi, where you kind of see what a failed government yeah. can do right what yeah. what are the consequences of a failed government you have people pleading for oxygen outside of hospitals yeah. all the sort of scanty you know public health facilities are overwhelmed and there's people dying in droves and i mean you see this on social media but elsewhere like what do you do when somebody's sort of begging for an oxygen cylinder yeah. and putting out this call uh it, it was a really kind of disturbing tragic miserable time and in the midst of that the protest is holding strong. Yeah. And in fact, the protests, the, the, the kind of encampment sites are providing food for the poor of Delhi. They're actually organizing, the same groups that are organizing sort of food and, and medical stuff at the protest sites are also organizing oxygen for the residents of Delhi. So, and this is not just a kind of strategic earning goodwill. This is the ethos this is of this mobilization. <laughs> this is what people what they, do. Yeah. And they're, they're inspired by Sikhi and Sikh philosophy. And a lot of these groups are, are, are sort of connected to Sikhi. 
Um, and, and that I think also kind of um, shook people in the sense that yeah. these people have been demonized by the state and by sort of mainstream media uh, and look what they're doing. They're actually handling these, this crisis better than the elected government. Uh, and so they sort of weathered that storm of the kind of spring and, and early summer. Yeah. And then, I don't know, anything else happened before this? <laughs> well, I think, I mean, there was a kind of, like you said, the, the kind of celebrities get involved and then, you know, yeah. there's ongoing protests in front of Indian consulates and embassies across the world. Yeah. And those protests continue. Uh, this was another point I, I kind of mentioned somewhere else about, we don't in the West, I think, know how to engage in a sustained struggle. We get like struggle yeah. fatigue very quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, usually there are exceptions, of course, and, and there's incredible, especially First Nations mobilizations that are sustained, mm -hmm. but otherwise, or, you know, pipeline access stuff, there, there are sustained struggles, but by and large, our sort of mode is a kind of protest and expression, and then you sort of go home. Here, it's a sustained movement. And there were a lot of people that sort of fell off and sort of got disinterested and we're like, all right, well, what's the next hot thing? And of course, people have a right to be interested in whatever they want and, and intention spans being what they are, you know, people can take on different things, but there was this kind of lull. And I think it was just the committed people that were like, we're not gonna let this fall off the agenda. Right. The people are struggling there, but in this sort of online writing, yeah. speaking world, people were still engaging in stuff. So that I think happened throughout the summer and especially in the fall. There was a couple of key elections in Bengal, yeah. in Damanad, in UP, in the municipal elections where the BJP suffered sort of defeats. And I think then the sort of mobilization for the elections that are coming up in the next uh, year, the five states that are going up for elections, there was a kind of eye on that. So there's a lot of kind of churning and throughout the protest sites remain disciplined and organized and committed. And I think that's where we should kind of see the government was all out of options. They had kind of depleted their reservoir of dirty tricks and delegitimization, yeah. and they were sort of forced to make this massive concession. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, the issues, if we can, you know, if we can, if we can get to the issues, like mm. it, it kind of boils down to um, support for agriculture and whether whether there's going to be an ultimate kind of like guarantee that there's going to be a state procurement if you know given the buffering of agriculture and the climate and the way things go up and down with agricultural prices and world markets and so right. um you you've written you know before we even talked last time you were talking about how the Indian state after independence set up a system just and all the system was designed to do was make the worst of the British imperial famines kind of go away. And they succeeded at that. Um, but that's what they're trying to remove because of the po possibility of profits. And, and also, you know, when I looked into it, it's, it's also like a longstanding uh, campaign of the US and the European Union to have India um, have that all be privatized. So they're repealing the bills, but um, you've been posting stuff. And I, I saw this thing uh, where they're saying like the minimum support price, uh, you know, it's, it's, 
and and the agri government agricultural procurement has to be expanded. It has to, you know, it, it you can't just say like, cool, you repealed repealed the bill. So like, what are what are some of the debates and discussions going on about like what what happens now? Yeah. So this was, you know, a kind of um, a knife to one's throat, right? Um, and uh, with the repeal of the bills, I think it's going to happen on the 29th in the, in the session in Parliament. That immediate sort of existential threat will be removed, but the status quo was a disaster uh, by all accounts, especially in Punjab and Haryana, but, but throughout the country, but just in Punjab and Haryana, you know, the, the water table was plummeting, the soil was degrading, uh, farmer suicides, you know, land fragmentation, all sorts of inequities. So it was nothing, there was no, you know, the status quo itself was, was um, unsustainable and disastrous. And so, the removing of this existential threat means that we're still back in a kind of crisis mode. Now, what the government was trying to do was, as you said, sort of um, dismantle a public system of procurement by creating a kind of parallel private arena, um, which would thrust people back into volatility and poverty. Now that system by and large is only sort of intact and existent in Punjab and Haryana to an extent Rajasthan and Western UP, where farmers are able to avail themselves of these two sort of things or two mechanisms. One is the minimum support price. And the second is the infrastructure to actually buy crops at that price. Right. The so-called mundis. And without, yeah, without that, um, so they, they kept arguing, the government argued that there'll still be an, a, a minimum support price, but they're just dismantling all the, all the markets. Right. So right. they would dismantle the markets and they would allow private players in. And yeah. then after a couple of years, they would sort of do away with it all. So that yeah. has been averted. But the, but the point is that those two mechanisms, the struggle, the turn of the struggle, is to extend those across the country. That no farmer should just be a, a hostage to you know, market fluctuation. Um, and, and instead, if you have, and there is MSP support. So even if Punjab and Haryana farmers mostly get the MSP, huge numbers of farmers across the country are aware of what MSP is. And they're aware they're not getting it. So if you set up an MSP system across the country, you grow what is ecologically sound and you have the infrastructure to actually buy those, uh, that produce, you can ensure the well-being throughout. And so the, the move, the most immediate thing is to set up a kind of law on MSP, make it a legal right so that corporations can't undercut and buy at lower prices. So you set up the infrastructure and the minimum support prices across the country um, and so every farmer will be assured of a kind of, of, a, of, a, of a fair price. This is not some antiquarian 1960s, 50s old model. This is actually what they're doing in many, many other countries. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, whenever people talk about antiquarian models, it's like you guys are trying to restore the British Empire's agricultural right. model. Right. How, right. What are you talking about right. antiquated models? Right, right. Or like the, the, the whole sort of fantasy of like the so-called gig economy. Yeah. That is plunging people into 19th century precarity yeah. and uncertainty. There's nothing progressive and like modernistic about it. It's like a, not just like a neo-feudalism, like it's, it's like the worst cutthroat yeah. capitalist market-driven nightmare you could imagine. They're regurgitating that and repackaging it. So ensuring price supports and purchasing infrastructure is sane. Yeah. Uh, and, and actually <laughs> makes good ecological sense. It can make good economic sense. So that's the first thing to actually broaden this 
not just ensure the kind of well-being of Punjab and Haryana, but extend it across the country. And that's, I think, the major kind of sticking point in the in the next little while. So, the just um, I, you know a couple more questions. I know sure. it's, I don't want to keep you too long. It's a Sunday morning, but um, the like you can't as as if you watch like what's happened in Kashmir or even what's happened with the COVID response or you know the Bima Kora Gaon case and like the way they persecute. Um, uh, you know, uh, Muslims, I, I mean, of course, the killings of Muslims and the complete impunity, the way they've attacked universities. And it's like, it's almost, in spite of how much it costs, in spite of the 750 deaths and, and all of this, you know, suffering and sacrifice that the movement has done, you can't help but like look at it with a little bit of jealousy or, you know, and say like, how did you guys do this? Like, what do, what do you have? <laughs> what do you have that the other people that have been trying to fight for their rights don't have? So like, how do you, what, what was, you know, mo a lot of it can't be generalized, but like, what do you think the keys were to this, uh, to the success of this movement? Yeah, it's a, you know, important and, and um, difficult questions, but, but, um, I can maybe, my, my, my tentative thoughts are first, I don't think we don't have a substitute for popular mobilization, broad-based grassroots society-wide mobilization. It can't be um, a sort of coterie of activists and sort of committed people sort of doing something. It has to be generalized to capture the imagination of large numbers of people. And that, sort of societal mobilization is what gave this protest the longevity to weather the storms and the attacks and the attempts to delegitimize and kind of sustain it. I mean, people saw this as existential, people saw this as a kind of do or die battle, but also it, it kind of captured the imagination of everyone. So not just farmers or workers, but school teachers and transporters and students and, you know, urban workers and, and, and intellectuals, but, but, but government employees and the rest of it. So I think that, that notion of like mobilizing beyond the sort of committed core is, it sounds easy, but I think that that is what makes a struggle um, so much harder to sort of just crush and defeat. Um, I think that agriculture has a sort of space in the Indian imagination subcontinental imagination, maybe part of a global imagination as, as a kind of primal activity that feeds people. And uh, an attack on that, you know, is kind of felt by people that are three or four or five generations urban that have never seen a field in their lives, but they can kind of see that. Um, I think the uh, conjuncture of, you know, Punjab and Sikhi and Haryana and sort of this kind of place in the country and the kind of sort of uh, uh, religious uh, distinctions there played a role in making it harder to crush. Not that it was, uh, you know, the government was, was more sympathetic, but it is harder to crush people when they're sort of organized and committed and driven by these ideals. Um, so, I mean, those are the kind of immediate reasons, but um, I think it's, there's still so much uncertainty. There's still so much sort of, um, we're unsure about the sort of ways this is gonna kind of play out in the next weeks and months. Uh, what are the repercussions?
but I think maybe the, the, the last point I'll say on this is governments are invincible until they're not, right? I said this before too, that the kind of notion that the Modi regime, that the BJP was just, you know, intransigent and would never, you know, uh, step back, uh, that has been proven to be false. Yeah. That organized, committed people can achieve anything. Uh, and this regime, for all its veneer of being all powerful, is not. Yep, absolutely. And I think I, I, for me, the two, the, you know, I talking to you last year too. For me, the a couple of things that stood out was like the the strategy, the strategic decisions that were so good one was like you said not going into the city and getting sucked into that like supplication uh game another one was like not getting sucked into the electoral game right like or or the negotiation kind of situation where they can peel off and co-opt leaders uh so those were all like that that was just like we have (laughs) you have to repeal the laws and like, that's it. <laughs> We're not going to take anything else. We don't, we don't want to talk about anything else. Uh, yeah. And that was, I think that was something really, really effective. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, uh, the you know, the, some of these farmer union leaders have become quite sort of prominent mm-hmm. and um, they have their own kind of followings and they have their own kind of detractors, but they will tell you themselves that, if they compromised, the people would lynch them. You know, in Punjabi, they'd say something like that, right? So, and and I think what that reflects is the amount of political awareness people at the protest sites had and the kind of fear the leaders had in betraying that trust that people invested in them. So the negotiations were transparent. They would have to report back to their constituencies uh, and show them what was being decided, what was not, what are the main demands. And once the kind of um, pressure had been ratcheted up, there was no stepping back. And so the leaders, you know, in their varying degrees of wisdom, um, but also the fact that the, that people at the protest sites and throughout, I would say, Punjabi society were so ardent that it would be impossible to sort of just sort of capitulate and betray this movement in the same way, as has been done in the past. Union leaders are not revolutionaries. Yeah, Union leaders cut deals all the time. Yeah, and they've done it before. And so there's a kind of, you know, there, there is that, that kind of um, dilemma. The electoral question is, I think, now going to become more important because there's an election coming up in March, uh, February, March of 2022. And in Punjab, you know, uh, the BJP is kind of non-existent. The Akali Dal is a uh, you know, seen as a kind of corrupt, uh, nepotistic kind of family-run party. The Congress is in shambles, infighting, um, betrayals, opportunistic peoples, also directed by a nepotistic family in Delhi. Um, and the Amadmi party is seen as a kind of having squandered its own sort of fortunes and uh, full of sort of opportunistic people, also managed by now an individual in Delhi. So there's a kind of craving for political alternatives and there's nothing really on the landscape right now. And I think this is a critical juncture that I don't have a hard line on, but it's a critical juncture where are these unions going to get involved in electoral politics or not? With this sort of windfall, 
Are they going to kind of make that transition? Will they be able to do it collectively? Will some of these unions sort of stand on their own? Will some of these unions align with one of these existing parties? Will they eschew electoral politics and continue the kind of mobilization outside of the electoral realm? These are open questions and they're being talked about a lot. And it's hard to, I would say, rely on our prescriptions from earlier times yeah. because we are living in a new, in a new moment. Yeah. And I think uh, if somebody were to say, start a new radical political party in Ontario, the NDP is not worth it. The liberals are not worth it. Let's do something else. Yeah, that might be a kind of routine, you yeah. know, eye rolling kind of proposition. But I think it's different now in yeah. Punjab. It's, di- it's going to be different in these other states because a new world has been born. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's it's it it's totally a yeah, it's totally changed the situation. It's and psychologically, I don't I don't just measuring myself. I feel totally differently about well, things. The, the reason <laughs> is I, I would say I, say I said this in the other pieces. We're just not used to winning. Yeah, we are so used to mobilizing and you know fighting and then getting crushed and betrayed. And yeah. then sort of mourning our sacrifices and fighting another day. Yeah. We don't know what it means to actually win. Yeah. So like, of course, we haven't won everything. There's so much more to do. But just no. this moment of like, my gosh, we've achieved something um, is, 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 I think, uh, disorienting and yeah. novel. Wow. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, yeah. Wow. We should probably just uh, stop on this note because this is a great note to end on. Excellent. Um, <laughs> Navu Gill, thank you so much. Um, your uh, your Twitter handle is Navu Gill, N A V Y U G G I L L. Anywhere else uh, people can find your stuff, or uh, that where just you- that's there's a website, navugill.com. Some of my writings and, and articles and stuff are up there, and then um, yeah, that's the best way. And I was pressuring you that you're you're probably going to try to write about this sometime. The yeah, there's a perhaps something will come out. There's so. pressure building on Navu to, to <laughs> say to do something. And many of us, many, many people out there. <laughs> Thank you. Awesome.